the summit of the future presents a whole new opportunity to reinvigorate the multilateralism system. That's what it's about, right? It's an exciting opportunity to see how we can reshape, revamp, we can innovate and really make sure that we're acting upon the decisions that have been made in the UN today, but also historically too. Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Nadara. And you're listening to UN Necessary. A podcast where we interview the people behind the scenes on the upcoming United Nations Summit of the Future, set to take place in September 2024. Thank you so much, Ishan, for agreeing to join us today for this little chat about the Summit of the Future, our vision, our aspirations, and our expectations for what is to come out of it. The purpose of this podcast is really to have a discussion uh, about what's happening, what our hopes are. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on this podcast. I'm Ishan. I'm 20 years old, based in London in the UK. And I'm in my final year of undergraduate studies at King's College London, reading a degree in international relations. And I sort of fell into this world of social impact and human rights back in 2017 when I started Stolen Dreams, which is a youth-led collective working to combat modern slavery and human trafficking through education, advocacy and policy. So just before this call started, we were talking to Dan about Gen Z slang because I picked some stuff up from my sister. And I've Here seen we go. This Dan is old. In- Dan is old. I got it. <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, I say this is not my slang. This is what I pick up from my sister. Okay, it started creeping into my vocabulary, and I just learned of this incredible phrase that I have now grown to love and try to use as much as possible, which is "do it for the plot." Just do it for the plot. And I'm curious with the summits of the future. This episode, we're discussing the past, present, and future and the arc of engagement of the summit. What's the plot here, Ishan? We're gonna go to your Gen Z expertise. What's the plot of the summit of the future? Going into the summit of the future, I think that's the attitude we have to have. Essentially any decisions that we make and any inputs that we have into the summit, we should always just start by saying we're doing it for the plot. We shouldn't hold back, we shouldn't be conservative because this is a big moment for the UN system. It's a big moment for the world in general, right? Holding a summit that is essentially designed to facilitate the institutional and structural reforms to deliver on the SDGs, to deliver on the commitments of the UN Charter and Declaration of Human Rights. It's a really exciting time to reimagine what the future could be and what the future can be. And I think the way we've seen things go in the intergovernmental space is not the energy or not the vibe of this summit, to put it in a Gen Z way. We have to go into this summit with ambition. We shouldn't be holding back, whether it's on development, human rights, fundamental freedoms. We have to push as much forward as possible. Every year, events are happening, conferences, commissions are happening at the UN, and we always hit the bare minimum. We don't have anything new. We don't have anything exciting. And I only really fell into the UN world in 2021 uh, when I was invited to speak at a parallel event on trafficking in persons during the 65th session of the Commission on the Status of Women, CSW. And when I got the invite to speak, I didn't really know much about the UN system. I'd obviously heard about it at school in passing. I was told that it was a global institution that works to do good in the world, but apart from that, didn't know much else. And I spoke at this event, met a bunch of incredible young feminists who were working on the Generation Equality Forums um, at the time with UN Women. And was just so inspired by the work they were doing, in particular how they were bridging what was happening on the ground at the very grassroots level to what the UN was doing and vice versa. And fallen into the UN world and been stuck there ever since, for better or worse. 
<laughs> oh dear. Ishan, I actually was wondering, what got you into modern slavery and human trafficking? We see so many young people engaged in issues of climate change or issues of justice and democracy, but this is something different. I was 11 years old when I went to India for the first time, which is where my grandparents are from. And that was the first time that I witnessed modern slavery, human trafficking, survivors of modern slavery, human trafficking, particularly children in person, and had no idea what that meant at the time. We had learned at school about the transatlantic slave trade and how that was abolished. And we were taught mm. that slavery was eradicated off the face of the earth. And that's the thinking that I had grown up with. It wasn't until 2016, when I was 13 years old, that I first found out modern slavery existed. And my parents were telling me, well, you know, you've met survivors, you've seen or been to areas where people, particularly children, are vulnerable to exploitation and trafficking. And I was shocked because we were taught that it was abolished. And then I was being told that this is not only just an issue happening in faraway countries and faraway communities, but it's happening on our doorstep. It's happening in the UK, in London, in the clothes you wear, the foods we eat, and the technology that we're using even to record this podcast today. And this really isn't a new phenomenon, despite it being called modern slavery, but it's a very systemic issue that's been happening for centuries. The very premise of exploitation is what our systems and societies thrive off. But this sector, the anti-slavery sector, was very much reserved for the academics, the so-called experts who have been studying this issue for decades, the people who collect the data. Mm. There wasn't any interaction with young people and there wasn't any sort of mobilizing or harnessing the potential and the power that young people have to catalyze action in that sense. The idea came, we were doing a project at school um, where we could explore a topic um, over the period of six months of our choice. And I thought, well, I've just found out modern slavery existed. I have this six months opportunity to do a project at school. I don't want to just write an essay and get a mark and move on. Let me use this as an opportunity, recognizing the privilege and resources I have to start something with more of a lasting impact and contribute to the space however I can. And so Stolen Dream started really as a very simple website that was designed to engage young people in the issue in a very accessible manner and really translate that online awareness into offline action. It's born of a horrible tragedy, but it is a fantastic initiative that you've taken. The question that arises for me is, how does that pathway look from this particular issue of modern slavery or the continuation of historic slavery into something like your engagement in Summit of the Future Processes, the Commission on the Status of Women? I mean, they are related, of course, but it's not necessarily a linear trajectory to the point where you are reading UN resolutions word for word, trying to recommend and think about new ways of introducing rights and freedoms into these documents. What does that pathway look like for you? And, and, and I think, sorry, Dan, to interrupt, but I think that this, in addition to the question that you're raising to Ashad, is a question I think we've both dabbled with quite a bit as well, of how do we incorporate several issues, or at least see that journey of several issues in documents like the pact for the future or in the summit of the future process without necessarily creating sort of a shopping list of language. It's also about recognizing that, you know, modern slavery and human trafficking, the impact, it, we're talking about people here. We're not talking about agreed language or UN resolutions, but at the end of the day, these are people's lives. These are stories yeah. of survivors or people who lived experience who are going through experiences that are very different, very nuanced. Not every survivor will have the same experience in modern state of human trafficking. Exploitation exists on a spectrum. When we enter these spaces in the UN, everyone's trying to get across language, specific language, to the issues that they're passionate about. Mm. I think we have to recognize that there is already a lot that's happening at the UN on modern state of human trafficking. 
There's already agreements that member states have signed up to, whether it's the Convention Against Organized Crime or the Global Appraisal for Trafficking in Persons. There's a lot of good content out there in writing on paper. Even on a national level, many member states have national legislation that combats modern slavery and human trafficking. The summit of the future presents a whole new opportunity to reinvigorate the multilateralism system. That's what it's about, right? It's an exciting opportunity to see how we can reshape, revamp, we can innovate and really make sure that we're acting upon the decisions that have been made in the UN like today, but also historically too. There are so many root causes that enable modern slavery and human trafficking in the first place, whether it's poverty, gender inequality, lack of access to decent healthcare, lack of access to quality education. One of the elements of what you said that I want to unpack is this idea that everything's linked and tethered. So it's not necessarily that you need specific language on your issue in order for progress to occur, but it's recognizing that as we are advancing collectively, it will have that beneficial impact on that particular issue or concern. At the international level, we have to recognize intersectionalities and we can detach ourselves from that agenda and recognize that, okay, if we're having multilateral shifts, for example, in the way that we implement UN agreements and resolutions, or if we're recognizing commitments to advancing gender equality, that is indirectly and implicitly combating modern slavery and human trafficking. It's obviously my hope that in my lifetime, I will see an end to modern slavery and human trafficking. But at the rate that we're going, it doesn't look so promising. But that doesn't mean that we should stop the momentum. And I think rather than giving us a false hope that over the next seven and a half years, we will achieve it by 2030, we need to recognize we have to do as much as we can to get to a good point by 2030. So that as we look beyond, we can catalyze more progress in that sense too. So when we look at processes like the summer of the future, I think it's about recognizing that, yes, a lot has happened. It's about reaffirming those agreements that have already been made and implementing them at the national level. The question I have then is about the role of youth. We hear a lot about the rightful place of youth, the voice of younger generations. But one of the the challenges that I see arising is this bucketing of a group, an identity. It may not be youth, it may be gender, it may be older persons, persons Mm -hmm. with disabilities, sort of cordoning them off and saying, okay, tell us your view, three billion people. What is your unified view on X, Y, or Z? And I find that that's a human tendency. I don't think it's malicious. I don't think it's in order to exclude youth necessarily or to create a hierarchy. But I do wonder how we bridge this either identity divide or groupthink divide to really recognize that what's good for one can be good for all and what's good for all can be good for anyone. It's the million dollar question is how do you bring together young people, but also recognize that young people have very different experiences in their lived realities. I think as much as member states talk about building trust and cooperation with each other, I think we're also having the same conversations as youth as a constituency is how do we build trust with each other between, you know, all the different diverse groups who are doing their own things in wonderful ways? And how do we all come together towards a common purpose and towards a common agenda of the world that we wish to see for ourselves and for the generations to come as well? And it's not about excluding. It's about how do we open the space more? Also recognizing that the U- engaging with the UN in itself is a privilege. There are young people who mm-hmm. cannot engage with the UN who don't even know what the UN is or what it does, or who have much more important things to think about than how they can input into a certain UN process. And it's about how do you reach those young people? How do you bridge what's happening at the international level to the grassroots level? We have strong resolutions, we have strong agreements and commitments that member states have made at the UN. How do you then hold states accountable to implement those on the ground? And that's where we'll see the real changes when those agendas are all localized. Often what we see is a young person on a panel or a young person in a discussion 
presenting a quote-unquote youth perspective, not necessarily a perspective that happens to come from a young person. And usually that's because that's the brief that they've been given. I find it way more interesting when I have a conversation with a young person and I learn about their technical background, the experiences that they've been through, outside of the fact that they have a so-called youth perspective. But one of the things that I think we need to be thinking about is, firstly, how do we process dissent internally and with others? How do we engage with people who disagree with us? Because I think that oftentimes we preach to the choir of, we're talking to young people who believe in youth engagement about youth engagement. Because as you said, we're a heterogeneous group of people. It's not one homogenous entity. And I think with the UN Youth Office, with different institutions coming into play, especially towards the summits of the future, we need to be thinking about that quite critically. It's also about recognising that the UN is a member state different process. At the end of the day, the summit of the future and the pact that will be negotiated will be intergovernmental. But it doesn't mean that we can't make it our own. It's about making it our own in our communities and the spaces that we occupy. Because the summer of the future is a proposal delivered by the UN, but it means very different things for each of us. And I think that's what's exciting about it, is that there is going to be such diverse perspective being fed into this process. And we have to harness that excitement and that power and also make sure that it's spread beyond the UN circle or the typical faces that we see on these Zoom calls and in these meetings that we all go to. So where do you hope we'll be in a year if it's October 2024 in Ishan's perfect world where this has not been solely UN driven, but it has expanded to the zeitgeist of children and adults and youth all over the world? What do you think will be bubbling at that time? I'm sure there will be many more civil society and youth processes happening to generate that momentum around the summit as we move into next year and through to October. And then as we do reach the Hulmo Summit, pact or no pact, I would hope that the summit of the future and the legacy of it and the impact and you know, everything we've had to learn and unlearn and we take forward with us. I do obviously do hope the summit is a big success. I'm sure all of us will work as hard as possible to make sure that it is and to make sure that it does deliver. But I think regardless, it's about coming from a background of working at the grassroots space first before entering the UN system. I think that's what's most important. Ishan, I have a question here. You're going to be in some of these leadership positions, not just as a young person, but in this career track. So 2045, you'll be 42 years old. What do you hope that the summits of the future would have done to enable you to make the most of your opportunities of the multilateral system when you are 42 years old? Mm-hmm. And, and more sleep as well by then too, for, for, all, for all of us. <laughs> I think that the summer of the future and the preparation processes will at least start a conversation that looks at more of the structure and systemic limitations of the UN system and of the way that we conduct leadership, of the way that we approach, the way that young people are engaged and are participating in these processes. I would hope that it had started a conversation so that by 2045 we had already acted upon those structural limitations, sharing space, sharing power seeing young people not only as beneficiaries of change, but as partners at the table in a very intergenerational manner as well, I think is important as well, is the hope for 2045. Um, I mean, this is a, a kind of a revolution in terms of the process of diplomacy and of multilateralism, of human decision-making. And I think that's a really lovely perspective to have because also it allows those generations 10, 20 years from now to be thinking on their own. We're not prescribing what it's going to look like, but we're saying here are processes that we have learned as the current generation, we have learned that these are actually not leading us to the kind of success we'd like to see. 
the problem is not with the objective, the problem is with the process. And if we can contribute a more meaningful and inclusive and empowering process for those who are in leadership positions in 2045, then I think the summit of the future will have been a success in a sense. Mm -hmm. It would have led us to a path of a different process of decision-making. The summit of the future is an opportunity for us to take 79 at that point, years of lessons learned and embed them into the UN system mm -hmm. in a way that captures what we've done right, what we've done poorly, and enables us to make the most of all of that knowledge. Because that feedback loop of taking everything that we've seen work well and not work well, and putting it back into the UN hasn't quite happened yet. And this is that it's taking all of this generational knowledge and putting it back into the system. Exactly. I think it's all well and good saying we need more young people in leadership positions and we need youth engagement and we need more women and girls in decision making spaces. But these are essentially at the end of the day words on paper. We're not looking at the systemic and the structural issues that we need to address first to realize this. And I think that's where some of the future can come into play. Not even necessarily the outcome that is fingers crossed adopted, but the conversations that we have in the process leading up to it as well. Because whether it's us as individuals engaging or people in the room negotiating, they're individuals, they're people. When we talk about member state delegations and we talk about civil society participation and youth, we're not, again, homogenous groups. We're individual people who are emotional beings, who have aspirations and who have a vision as well for the future. One of the great benefits of this platform is to meet these very people. Sometimes mm. you just hear the name of an important, influential person in these spaces, and they sort of flatten into a name or a celebrity or what have you. But then as we have these sorts of conversations, you learn about the human heart that allows that celebrity yeah. to shine through. And I'm so grateful to you, Ishan, for taking the time to join us. There's one final question that we like to ask all of our participants, and it's sort of a play on the name of this podcast, which is UN Necessary. Uh, and so we ask, what is one thing that you think is necessary that is happening at the United Nations that we shouldn't do without? And then what is one thing that is perhaps unnecessary that you think the sooner we rid ourselves of it, the better off we'll be? The one main one that's necessary is, of course, youth leadership, youth participation across the entire UN system, including in intergovernmental processes and decision-making spaces. I would say the, the unnecessary part, I think, is the fact that I think many of us often wait for the UN to do something to then act. And I think we shouldn't be doing that. It's unnecessary to do that. We don't have to wait for the UN to convene a space. We don't have to wait for member states to convene a space to make decisions. But we can do it. As civil society, as youth, we have immense convening power too. I always walk away from our conversations so motivated. I'm like, yes, I'm going to go out tomorrow and convene a forum and change the world. Tomorrow? But it's, it's, you know, um, but <laughs> I'm going it's, out right now. <laughs> there we go brilliant brilliant no thank you both i think this is such a great space to humanize these big un words and jargon that we can often overlook very often i think we all go about our day-to-day -day lives so quickly because we're so overwhelmed with everything that we have to do but this is such a great space to just take a moment to reflect to humanize what's happening at the un yeah and thank you both for everything that you do as well and for always being there to support me personally i feel re-energized too i might go and take a nap after this but I'm still re-energized. <laughs> there seems to be a running theme. <laughs> sleep, Ishan. <laughs> sleep, sleep. <laughs> Thank you again. It's been really a delight as ever to speak with you, Ishan. And Likewise. Adar.